Hello and welcome to another edition of BAFTA Crew Online. My name is Ian Hayden-Smith and this afternoon I will be talking with Mark Bridges. Hello Hi. Mark. Hi. Um, I should say before we get going that the views expressed over the course of the next hour are not those of BAFTA. Mark is a BAFTA and Oscar winning costume designer on The Artist. His most recent film that's uh, been released in cinemas is Fifty Shades of Grey. His work has ranged from small indie works through to mainstream Hollywood, and he's attracted international acclaim for his collaborations with both David O. Russell and also with Paul Thomas Anderson, which means he is the man who put Tom Cruise in those Y-fronts in Magnolia. Um, I'm going to come to Paul Thomas Anderson uh, in a short while. I just thought we could start with some general questions about your work, and particularly how you started out and the move from working within the team to becoming a head of department. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to graduate school, a Master of Fine Arts at, at New York University, and always knew I wanted to be in film, even though they, they kind of uh, were all opera, dance, theater, but I always had my eye on film. And right out of that, I would take any job that I could get, do anything. Someone told me, see as much as you can and do as much as you can. Many times I was like the $100 a day guy. Uh, and I hooked up with Richard Hornung, who was designing for the Coen Brothers, Miller's Crossing. And I was only supposed to work for him for a week, like sizing vintage clothes. And then I ended up... Yeah, you know, we got along really well, and I became sort of their uh, New York guy while they were on location in New Orleans. And then uh, he went and uh, d was got the job of the Grifters in L.A. and asked me to, if I wanted to come from New York to assist him on, in L.A. And what was happening in New York at the time was uh, not much, so I was like, I'll be right out. <laughs> And uh, I used to drive around at night and figured my way around the city and, and learned all the sources and ended up assistant designing uh, the Grifters. And about six weeks in LA, I was thrilled to be there and I was, that was where I was gonna move. And I just kept assisting Richard for like 10 films, but in the meantime, I would do my own small projects if I could. So, uh, and in, in LA, you have to join a union and I was doing a television show for a friend and we went union and then the next job with Richard just happened to be a studio picture at Warner Brothers. So it all kind of fell into place but so doing your own small projects while you're assisting and sort of making better money and, and, and learning not in the front row but watching other people's the way they get through big pictures was the way I did it. And then <clears throat> someone recommended me for Paul Thomas Anderson. He was just starting out, this young guy, this 23-year-old guy was doing a movie and was looking for a costume designer. So I was like, great, I'll meet him. And we hit it off. And the rest is history. 20 years ago. Um, what, biggest, what were the biggest challenges you faced when you started out? You mentioned unions, which I know can be quite tough mm -hmm. to sort of get in, but... You know, I think I you know, landed myself out in California and, uh, you know, where do you go from there? You read a backstage, you don't really have any connections. I, luckily, I, some of the people from New York University had moved out to L.A., so of course I was calling them. I think, and, and then I ultimately got a job about a month after being out here as a recommendation from a producer from the Grifters for a designer 
that was looking for an assistant for a television show. So I was like, great, I'll take that job. And um, so, it, so as, as what it sounds like is that, you know, the recommendations are everything. I do think that a word of mouth and, you know, if you're good at your job and you're, you know, have ambitious and thoughtful and, you know, seem, I always say to the, the trainees on my shows is, you know, the cream rises to the top, really. I mean, you, people will want to hire you again if you seem, you know, engaged and independent thinker and things. And I think one thing will lead to another. And you, you've dabbled over the years um, in television. Is there much difference, have you found, between the two roles? Not for me, because um, my process kind of stays the same. Um, you know, I just did a, that pilot that I mentioned to you earlier that was 1973 last summer. It actually had more shooting days than some features I've done. <laughs> um, but uh, the process was the same. The process was the same of, of research, acquiring the garments, figuring out how to tell that story. So whether it's television or film, for me, that process stays the same. And actually, I'm finding some, you get a little more time on television than you do sometimes in the features with, from casting and um, things like that. And in terms of your preparation, Let's talk a little bit about the research first. Um, we had Ivana Primorak here recently um, talking about hair and makeup on Steve Jobs, amongst other films. And she says that the internet is great, but she always goes back to books, mm. specifically to help her with research. In terms of your process of researching, do you have a specific modus operandi of, of how you build your research for a film? Yeah, I do, and it's changing as Google becomes better. <laughs> um, but I certainly always have, in, in LA, we always had uh, Warner Research, which was, you know, f files and files. You could say, like, could I see some uh, Mexican firemen and uh, some nurses from the turn of the century? And they'd go in the back and they'd come out with a wad of <laughs> pictures and things, because it had been from Warner Brothers Studio. And they kept them. That's no longer there, unfortunately. But it was always it's, there's always that thing of the paper and the books. And but um, now uh, I'm starting to rely more and more on on the a click. Um, but I, it's what you put into that search engine that makes it be interesting. You know, I do very broad searches, and so you never know what you're gonna find that you didn't even know you were looking for. Especially on Inherent Vice, you know, there was. Uh, I don't know, you just find things that may lead you in another direction and another direction. I find the book thing now to really be physically uh, laborious. Yeah. You know, I have a pile of books with like two pictures in each of them that I'm gonna go get zero, you know, photocopied, really. So <laughs> with, with other materials for, for actual, the physical side of research, um, I've spoken to a lot of sound recordists over time and they say that I never stop working, I'm always recording, I'm always finding something in the same way that cinematographers will talk about taking photos. In terms of textiles, materials, fabrics, do you have your own sort of selection of things that you refer back to or do you start each project completely anew? You know, that's another thing that gets really cumbersome. I mean, I, would, I, would, <clears throat> I think we all have a tendency to be 
you know, pack rats a little bit about like, oh, I've got this greatest trim. But, you know, 20 years later, I look back and I said, I still have that trim. <laughs> and it never came up <laughs> to use it. So it gets to be, I try to start fresh. You know, sometimes there will be a few uh, things that maybe I've kept a cherished piece and then great, we used it as an inspiration or we used it as a pattern or something. But I don't save a lot of things uh, because um, I've, it's just a no-win situation, really. Let's, let's look at a, at a recent example of your work, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and perhaps, first of all, if you could talk a little bit, because a number of films you've worked on have been adaptations, about the role for you or the relationship for you between the book, the original mm -hmm. source novel, mm -hmm. and the adaptation of the script. Yeah. Uh, I chose not to read the book of Fifty Shades. Um, I proposed the idea to the director that we just deal with the script because I'd done a couple other films that had been based on books like In Heron Vice and, 50, uh, and uh, Silver Linings Playbook that I read the book and then ultimately the, the script wasn't the book and I was still stuck with some things in my mind that I missed from the original material or that kind of got in my way when taking a fresh eye to the material we were dealing with. So um, yeah, I, never, I have not ever read Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, I, I know as much as I need to know about it from popular culture. And then of course, we had Erica, we had E.L. James there, the author, every day on the set. So whatever I didn't know, and she wanted me to know, <laughs> um, she let me know. Um, and, you know, in a very, very nice way. So I didn't really even need to read it because I had the author there to guide me. And how easy, it's a two-part question, really. First of all, let's talk about the iconographic element of a book. And you are designing costumes for a film that is so much, as you said, part of, of the, the pop psyche, pop mm -hmm. culture psyche. Mm -hmm. How much of a challenge was it? to realize that vision within the constraints of the producers knowing that the audience were expecting something? Yeah. Um, I think the fact that I did not read the book uh, made me just come at it fresh eyes like any script I would do to, to figure out how to tell this story. Um, you know, and we sort of track Anastasia going from naivete to uh, a woman. And, uh, you know, I made choices and beats along the way for that to try to see those little beats. Maybe something had happened in a relationship and the next time we see her, she's either taken on a, a, something of his or somehow feels a little more like him. You know, I'm always there for this uh, unidentifiable something, you know, you're feeling what I'm doing, but you can't, hopefully you can't put your finger on the emphasis and beats that I'm making. You know, I think if you really analyze it or something, you, you might be able to, but, um, so, and there's this, there, where we'd gotten at the end of the film, what we'd shot was that she'd really taken on sort of his coloring and, and the colors that he wears or that he was represented, it was ultimately dropped from the film, so we didn't do that ending. But I was very happy if you saw the first picture of her, what she looks like in the beginning, like an awkward kid waiting for the school bus, 
to this sort of grown woman having taken on so much of him and exhibited physically in her clothing and color choices. I was really happy with that. I, I don't know anything about anything from popular culture, but I knew that I was telling the story. And with him, you know, he goes the opposite way. So hopefully breaking down the suits and is breaking him down and him taking her on and softening his textures and having him less be, be less dressed up and having him be more of a regular guy as she affects him. Um, so, and again, storytelling. Yeah. So um, that's it, what I did. I guess it's that thing that you can talk as much as you want about the audience, but ultimately you, you have to create the work in the moment that you're working on it and not have to worry too much about reception. That's a completely different thing. No, not at all. I mean, you know, there was a, you know, you're concerned that you're doing a service to this piece that so many people have created in their mind's eye of what it really is. You know, I did get one email from Erica about like, here's a couple of outfits that I think my readers are going to expect. <laughs> and one of them was the gray chiffon graduation dress. And the other one was a, a burgundy dress when she's doing the negotiating. She didn't tell me what those dresses were. She just wanted to have those beats in the script. So I appreciated that and you know, the way I feel is that they're not making the movie because of me, okay? I'm happy to give you whatever you want, you know? And I'll work with my actress and see what she feels comfortable in and what I like and what we're able to do. And so uh, I'm happy to be a part of that and, and do honor the readers who've made it such a blockbuster, you know? Um, was it, was it easy, an easy film to budget in terms of costume design? Um, yeah, I don't really remember that too much. I just kind of, I do think that they made some motions that we put in a budget and they made some kind of, oh, that has to come down a little bit kind of thing. But, um, but um, then, you know, it was a really great experience because I was just, I was doing memo on Rodeo Drive for Christian Grey and, you know, we, it's rare that you'll, you know, get out on approval, you know, $3,000 cashmere sweatpants, you know, just to have, that was really fun. I really didn't think much about it. We, but also I'm, but, you know, I do see that the budget is part of my job, it's part of my responsibility, just as much as getting the clothes on screen. Is, is staying within those parameters. And sometimes you're even more creative because you have those parameters. So I don't really balk at the budget deal. But at some point, I wasn't thinking about running, having a second thought about grabbing a Prada purse for Christian's mother. Not one second thought. It was just like, we need that. <laughs> it's, it's not something I've really thought about before, but in terms of the practical side of your role, and you don't have to be specific, but have you, has product placement or the pressures of product placement ever been an issue within no. your work? I run the opposite direction. I'm just like, okay, you're gonna have to get somebody else to do that because it's, it's actually, it's great in theory, but in practice it doesn't really work. Um, unless they're like just bringing it to you. 
they it's never it's it's always it's always uh, forced on you it's always like forced to try to make it work now it's become really obvious a lot of directors are you know can smell a rat a mile away about like why does that have a name on it or why are we using this in the scene you know they don't want the audience to be taken out of the scene because they're noticing somebody's logo or somebody's you know, sometimes the studio makes a connection and you kind of have to go with it, but I, th they need to make it happen. Yeah. Like, I'm just doing my thing, and if you want product placement, well, make it happen. They usually don't. <laughs> One of the interesting things about Fifty Shades of Grey for me is that it's, it's rooted in some kind of reality, but a sort of, sort of hyper-reality. And this is something that's fascinated me with David O. Russell's work, and particularly the films that you've worked with him on. We have a very specific reality in cert at certain points, but the first film, I Heart Huckabees, mm -hmm. really fascinates me because it, on one level it's an everyday suburban environment, mm -hmm. but you have this hyper-real feel to this world, this, this kind of high melodrama crossed with screwball comedy. Could you talk about your first collaboration with him on this and the demands of what he wanted to create this kind of very oddball, goofy world? Okay. Um, this collaboration almost didn't happen. You know, I interviewed with David. I really liked him a lot, and he hired somebody else. <laughs> um, and about eight days before they were going to start shooting, I get a call from my agent <laughs> that says, um, yeah, uh, they want to know if you're available for David's show. And I was like, I've been waiting for this call. Yes, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go and talk to him about it. Yeah, sure. I'll just go in. I'll just talk. We'll just talk. I never left. I ended up doing the show. And, it, you know, David had very specific ideas about what that film should look like. Yeah. Um, and it was based on, like, a 70s French film, and I, the name escapes me because it's been 12 years, whatever, you know, I knew at the time. And I knew, and some of the costumes were taken right from that film. Like, we have plugged it into, like, Isabel wears this dress, you'll recognize it. Lily wears this dress. You know, I think David's idea was the poke bonnet and the bib overalls for Naomi because, you know, it, it, he'd written that kind of madness. I would do things like, uh, you know, as, as Jude Law's character sort of broke down, I would change the sizes of his shirts so that they kept getting bigger and bigger so that he looked more and more disheveled. Um, you know, I think it was, you were just making an alternate, alternate reality with that. You know, she wears, she's wearing like some Montana, Lily's wearing some Montana suit that I found, a Claude Montana suit that was just perfect. And we made one of her suits and it's all touched on a color scheme that David had and um, ideas. He, he contributes a lot to the collaboration. He did particularly in that and I was grateful for any guidance because uh, I was coming on so late. Yeah. And but we just you know you just get with the program and and I had good help and I, I, luckily who the person that I replaced had not ever really seen any of maybe had only seen one principal or something so no one knew anything that I wasn't the regular guy you know the regular costume designer so and then there's a stark contrast between that film when you look at the fighter and the silver linings playbook. Mm -hmm. 
and, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, but I'm, I'm curious about David and yours vision of blue collar America, mm -hmm. working class America within these two films, because they, they're slightly more moneyed in Silver Linings Playbook, but they still seem to come from a specific milieu. Yeah, and I think it's a, a testament to David's writing in a, in a way. I mean, we had the benefit of having actual films of the family uh, in Lowell in The Fighter yeah. and, and family photos and videos and things of when they were in the public eye and family events and things. So I got a real flavor of who those people were um, and, and that period of time. So, uh, and then all you have to do is be in Lowell, Massachusetts and, and you take on, you see what that's all about. So you put 1990 or 1980, late 80s fashion into that Lowell situation. And, um, you know, it sort of takes over. I think getting Melissa Leo's character straight was a little bit of a problem at first. I, I had a fitting with her. Her hair hadn't been bleached or anything. And, and it was, it just wasn't, it was kind of like, well, this isn't really the character. I ultimately used all those clothes on the sisters, the daughters, and suddenly David was like, she needs to be more sexy. I need sexy. And um, so I found, so she had her hair bleached and cut, like the character, and then we did another fitting where I had rethought it and pulled it more sexy. And, and, that, and, she, and that character came to life in that fitting room that day. She, we knew we were onto something. And, you know, bless her, she went on to get an Oscar for that, you know, so for that role. Um, and in, in terms of your working relationship with him, yeah. um, and generally in your working relationship, and we can move on to the artist in a moment, um, are you someone who you would rather be given the script, some directions from the director, some ideas, a color palette, whatever, and then go off and have the freedom to oh, explore yeah. this yourself and then come back? Or... Oh yeah, I don't work in a vacuum. I mean, it's actually kind of harder and, and uh, less rewarding when you're just like, hmm, uh, this could be anything, you know, when you read the script. Uh, I want to hear, I love working with the concept. You know, let's have a concept, you know, no blue. Or we're going to make it feel like ordinary people. Or, um, you know, whatever we're doing, let's have it be black and white and silent, okay? Um, you know, uh, uh, then, then that reigns everything in. Then all the choices follow from those parameters, you know. Um, so I much prefer to have the feet. I, I kind of thrive on that, that solving that problem of giving the director what he wants for his vision and then fitting in how does the actor feeling fit into that. So I kind of moderate the whole thing visually uh, so that everybody is, ha is happy. And that includes the producers, the DP, the sound guy, and then maybe way down the list, I get to be happy about what it is, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm kind of moderating the whole thing. Let's uh, go back to the black and white. And how much of a challenge was that for you with the artist of working with specific colors? Uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, Alan Starsky, who's production designer on Schindler's List, spoke. And he said he has this color palette that he's always used, and suddenly, 
for his first black and white film. Mm -hmm. He threw everything out and had to start all over again of how red would look, how different colors would actually look. Yeah, well, you know, uh, we had camera tests and also, you know, I had a color board that I photographed in color and then in, you can switch your camera to black and white. So I just took pictures of that, put them up next to each other. So I could tell what ones read. And it's very interesting because what's distinctly colorful on the different colors is suddenly the same value on when it's in black and white. So that was a surprise. And it became very evident pretty quickly that textures were gonna be were gonna be the thing that told the story for me. It wasn't really gonna be colors, it was gonna be the textures. So uh, you know, flat or sparkly, satin or uh, nubby, you know, those, that's what was going to tell the story, not a particular color. And the use of fur, was, the, was did you use vintage, real, fake furs for um, during the film? Some of it's fake, some of them are real. Don't worry, there's no one from Peter. In yeah, no, sense. no, um, it's just the fake ones, I couldn't afford ermine, but they had a good <laughs> fake ermine, so I used that. And it was sort of a film within a film. So you'd never really know. Um, if I could use real, I would use real uh, vintage, you know, very old ones. That monkey fur collared coat is a real 20s coat that we rented. Yeah. And just sort of staying with the narrative of the film um, and the dance sequences and the movement in the film, I'm just curious about how, how much of an impact that had on your designs? Mm, the fact that she wears a dress that is not floor length in the finale yep. is, is directly because of how she felt dancing. Like she needed to have her feet unencumbered. It's not, and you know, at those times it's like, I'm not gonna say like, no, it has to be full length. No, it, she has to be able to do the dance is what it is. So I think my designs changed by her requirements and I was fine with it. I mean, what, uh, would I have had it another way? Maybe. I'm perfectly happy with it, fine. And then she does another dance. They do a dance in the office, which is just trying to make it seem a little later, a little 30s, but still, Hollywood, you know, because it's shorter. Her 30s stuff is shorter than was really in fashion at the time. Um, it's part of it is what's attractive now, but the other thing was her ability to dance in it. And also, you look at some of the research pictures and Hollywood actresses, even in the 20s with the drop waist, they wore a belt. They wanted you to see their figure. They wore shorter skirts because they wanted to show off their legs. So Hollywood always had their own story in those periods, and that's what we were doing a story about. And I gather for the film you produced a book of your not not published, but you actually yeah. created a book. Do you tend to do this with all your films? I do actually, and I try to. I put it in order of um, the. It's it's essentially you know the research in order illustrating, okay, this is how it would look at the opening at the premiere. Here's how, this is what backlot life looked like in 1927. This is, and um, so that we're going through, it's not, there's not really a lot of specifics other than say, I want to use a tailcoat for Jean and I want to use, you know, sparkles for whatever. Um, 
it's just, here's the vibe. This is where I'm going. This is what each of these scenes will feel like. And then you sign off on that and just leave me to go and make your film look like this. So um, I do that for all of them. And it's, it kind of started, I've always, we've always done tear sheets like that. Yeah. When I worked for Richard, that's, you know, that's what he always did. We did in grad school, Richard. Now I do books, because uh, Paul Thomas Anderson turned to me right when he was writing There Will Be Blood and said, like, I need to know what my movie's gonna look like. So I went and did a lot of research and sort of put it in order, like, here's the Sunday family vibe, here's, you know, Daniel is a minor, here's Daniel, now that he's made some money, children's fashion, you know, so that it's all well and good for Paul to do the research and write dramatic scenarios, but he didn't really know what that looked like. Do you get inspired by drawing or actually creating your own artwork? Sometimes I have to, I draw to get things straight in my mind. Like especially when there's a group like, uh, and uh, vinyl, this HBO thing, um, I had a party where all you know, 15 principles were all at the party. And so I'll draw that out to see, you know, one's in a short dress, one's in a long dress, one's in a caftan. How do you do, you know, eight men and not have them, and have each of them look different, like have their own character and have their own a way of expressing themselves. So I'll do that to, to, to do that, uh, to get it clear in my mind. And then, you know, I like finished sketches. I like to do the finished sketches at the end. But as far as like, here it is, this is what it's gonna be. I wish life was that easy. <laughs> um, it's, it's really uh, not like the old studio system, like this is what it's gonna be. Um, it's, it's really like bobbing and weaving and, and rolling with, uh, whatever's thrown at you in the schedule and, and working with an actor and seeing their physique. You know, I'm not, I don't have Garbo for 15 years so I know all her figure flaws. I've got, you know, Sally O for, on Saturday so she can work next Saturday. You know what I mean? So I need to get to it right away and figure it out. Can't draw that. I can have an idea, I can have research. We might go this way, we might go this way. I, you know. We'll draw it later when we decide. Any questions? Not yet. <coughs> um, before we move on to Paul Thomas Anderson, just a, a couple of questions regarding a few other films, particularly in relation to location or unusual settings. Um, Deep Blue Sea, mm -hmm. um, Rennie Harlan's film you worked on, mm -hmm. and thinking about that in terms of costume design, Mm -hmm. I just wondered if there were any pressures about, particularly Saffron Burrow's wetsuit, mm. and how people are going to look. There's a star persona that you're dealing with, how someone's going to be glamorous on screen in what's essentially, a, as you said, a cross between Jurassic Park and Jaws in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And working almost, what, 80% in water? Yeah. Um, you know, that was just a, it was a, I approached that film like I would approach any of my smaller films. Let's work out a character. She's gonna need a wetsuit, he's gonna need a wetsuit. We've got a guy to make a wetsuit. Um, 
you know, we do count, we get, I never see the cast until we're down in Mexico to fit them. Uh, it was, I'd been doing fittings with Saffron showing the director. Um, then we do camera tests and then I find out really what the studio is expecting isn't anything I've been working on for the last seven weeks. <laughs> um, so, and working, one of the troubles with location is working, we were in Mexico, that was where they shot the Titanic, that was the studio down there that you could fill up with water. I don't, I forget where it, where it is. But, um, so I'd have to go, I, they finally told me what they wanted. So I, to be able to shop to get anything else, I'd have to go all the way to San Diego, like back into America, to San Diego. I think I was by myself. I don't even think I had an assistant there. And just like frantically, like redo this character from, you know, sort of Jane Goodall to Ridley from Aliens. You know what I mean? Actually, actually the studio wanted Ridley. They didn't want... Um, Jane Goodall. Um, so, um, oh, thanks for telling me. I wonder if there's anything on sale. <laughs> so, uh, did that really, just really, really quickly. To me, that was a show that I even remember sitting down with my wardrobe supervisor with the executive producer saying, if somebody doesn't start paying attention to these costumes, there's not going to be any costumes. Do you know what I mean? It, you could tell that they had just all been worried about mechanical sharks and all the logistics and everything for so much that the clothes had taken. I've been prepping in Los Angeles, just me showing Rennie some pictures occasionally. So when it all finally happened, um, it, was, it was different than I'd planned, um, sort of all last minute and, um, you know, just a revelation at the last minute of what film we were actually making. So yeah, there was no pressure. There was, <laughs> there was no pressure for me until we got down there and did camera tests and it became very pressure. Do you have a preferred, and obviously each film is different, but do you have a preferred amount of prep time for a film or is it specifically with each project, the scale of it? Yeah, it does vary. I never have had extremely long prep times. I mean, it's usually about eight weeks. Um, sometimes it's 10. I think the project I'm on right now was about 14 maybe. Yeah. So, which is nice, which is great. You know, we used every bit of it. We used every, every bit of it. It does, it depends on what they can afford. It can, it depends on the scale of the project. And how much does your close team, working team, change? Pretty much every show, because you get out of sync with people. I like to take long vacations between shows, um, and they don't. A lot of people don't. A lot of people want to keep working and things, and so I get out of sync. Or I'm going on location and they really need to be home with their sick cat or something and can't leave town, you know what I mean? Um, and it's real, I know the cat. So <laughs> it's like I completely understand. But uh, it changes a lot. Luckily, you know, I'm back here in England and I'm fortunate enough to get everybody back from Captain Phillips who helped me, who was my English crew on that and they came back for this other one with Paul Greengrass. And how much of a challenge was Captain Phillips? 
you know, that's interesting. We, we were, we were going to start shooting it in New Orleans, and then all of a sudden it became sort of a British-based production, and we shot it in Malta. It was all about where the Maersk ship was going to be. Yeah. You know, but ultimately, the storytelling of that, it was based on real people. The research came from real footage or research of the Maersk crew. The real, you research Somalia, you, the real guy who lived. Um, but then, you know, I have to tell a story visually and a lot of times things, stories like that, just come down to the old Montagues versus the Capulets kind of thing. I mean, that Maersk ship is cool blue and everything is cool. And then suddenly this vibrancy comes into, breaks their world. And that's why I used all the oranges and the yellows and golds and things so that you really got that. Their world was disturbed and it, it just, Visually, it hopefully told that story. And sort of related to this and going back as well to the, the prep work, working with makeup um, and cinematography, you've worked with you know, some of the world's finest cinematographers, um, Barry Aykroyd on that, mm -hmm. and Robert Ellswood as well with Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, what's your favorite time when it comes to actually um, showing a cinematographer or showing the makeup department or the production design department your designs is that something you want to do early after you've shown a director or um you know it varies you know i'll usually talk to the cinematographer about you know how white can the whites be yeah this is kind of the direction that i was going into for a certain character they're all pretty flexible these days. They're, I'm working with that caliber DP. They can usually handle anything that I dish out, you know. Um, we, I rarely, we rarely sit down. I'll usually approach them and, and say, oh, you know, there's an actor who's particularly dark or whatever. Like, is this too light to go next to their face or something like that, you know. That's, that's the kind of conversations we'll have. Um, we had a French DP on the artist, and you know I would hold up things to him, and I think we shot the artist in black and white. I mean, in color actually, and then they digitally turned it black and white because there were some audiences that will not accept a black and white film, you know, like yep. Southeast Asia or something. They were thinking they were going to have to show it in color, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, we, uh, there were some weird color combination. I was like, please don't let them have to show it in color. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that was, I, I will have consultations, but it's not usually deep. It's not usually, it's not usually intense. It's just, I want to collaborate with everyone, you know. Um, for anyone watching this, they may have noticed it's gotten slightly darker. Um, at the moment, we were talking about Captain Phillips. We've not been taken over by a bunch of disgruntled BAFTA members. Um, we've had a bulb, I think, that's, that's, that's blown. Um, so, uh, however, it sets the tone for the moodiness of Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes, yes. So we're getting dark. Yes. Um, it is, and by any standards, I was saying to you earlier before, before we started filming that um, it is an absolutely remarkable collaboration. Uh, he is one of the most astonishing American directors to emerge in the last 20-odd years. Um, and perhaps because 
you've worked on a number of films set during this period. Let's, let's talk about the 1970s. Okay. Um, you've got Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice, and perhaps we could bring in Ted Demi's Blow uh -huh. into that, because what I love about those three films, looking at them, they are set within the same decade, but they have a very, very different texture in the way that the, the 70s is presented on the screen that runs the gamut from high kitsch to a slightly more toned down view of that period. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your research and what went into the, the look for the, uh, those films? Sure. Um, you know, Boogie Nights, uh, another labor of love, the same way the artist was labor of love for me. Um, you know, there's like five palettes in that, in that film. And because Paul had broken up the script into A, B, C, D, and E for some arbitrary reason, but I loved it. And, and it really works that way. So A was a palette of the, of the 70s, like rust and blue. And, and then as soon as it becomes successful, it's all high times, which ramped up the color. And then there's sort of New Year's, which is all sparkly. And then little Bill kills himself. Spoiler alert. And, um, and then we get into the 80s, which is drugs, D, section D, dirty laundry. Everything went through a D. So, you know, it, again, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, it's there, um, but hopefully you're not putting your finger on what you're seeing. You just feel it, those five different palettes. Blow is the same way. Because blow is all over the place, it's, it's in Colombia, it's in Florida, it's in Boston, it's in LA. Um, I tried to do different palettes for each, it's in Mexico, it's it, it, different palettes for that to go along with the different years. So again, you're not, uh, you know, put, you can't put your finger on it, but it's there somehow. You know you're in Colombia because there's teal. You, teal and orange, it's Colombia. Um, so, <laughs> Um, inherent by, you know, so that was those stories and, you know, just again trying to tell a story, trying to, to show the economic change from a guy from Boston to uh, an incredibly uh, wealthy drug dealer and then his downfall, you know, those choice, the, the ch trying to tell that story of the changes is what makes me make certain choices. I mean, I did get a lot of flack for putting Penelope Cruz in a nylon tracksuit there later in the film. But good, I'm glad, because, because it brought it home on where they'd gone. It's rather broad. I, f I feel, looking at it now, that it's rather broad um, choices in that film, but that's just, you're always your own worst critic, right? Um, Boogie Nights is still perfect to me, um, and it's, it came from just really having lived that era and remembering what I thought was cool in 1977, as gauche as it was, that's what Dirk liked. <laughs> what I liked is what Dirk liked. And uh, so those cho choices were very personal about those hideous shirts and shoes and things and what he would wear. It's interesting you say, because I do think about Boogie Nights as a memory of a period um, in time. Whereas Inherent Vice is more of a dream mm -hmm. of a moment in the past. It has this reverie mm -hmm. feel to it. And what I would say, the other reason I wanted to bring all three together is that they each have, are either entirely set or have a West Coast moment. Mm -hmm. And if these three films unfolded on the East Coast, you would have an entirely different 
view from the 1970s. That's right. And that's, what, that's why I always try to give, in my choices, a definite time and place to everything, you know, to, to give it some specificity about where we are and who these people are, you know. Um, Inherent Vice is a dream. It's Thomas Pinchon's dream. And we, you know, I tried to honor that dream while also having, you know, Joaquin feel comfortable and having Paul feel comfortable about what he was seeing and um, still have that exaggerated memory, vaguely stoner feel of uh, what that world was like. I mean, there are things in that book that are absurd, but I think not far from the reality of that time in Southern California. So we tried to do that. And how has your relationship developed over time? You mentioned coming up with ideas for There Will Be Blood mm -hmm. for him as he was writing it. It's, is it something that you're brought in now very, very early on a project and it gestates over time? Yeah. Actually, it's really, I mean, how, how fortunate am I that, you know, someone recommended me to a young director who is going to do his first feature and that we hit it off. 20 years ago, and this is what we produced, you know. And luckily it has evolved into that where f quite early on, I think, you know, certainly Magnolia, you know, I was fortunate enough to also be part of the production design in that. Um, you know, we had a concept for what that movie was supposed to look like. Um, sometimes Paul will show films and say, let's take a little grain of DNA from this kind of thing, and then you figure it out. Um, Punch Drunk Love was supposed to be, was kind of a uh, uh, sci-fi musical, is, <laughs> is, what, um, is what we, that was our concept for Punch Drunk Love, which is some people's favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, because it's so sweet. Was the discussion, for those of you who remember it, there are these beautiful musical interludes where you just have colors passing across the screen. Was there a discussion about that palette in relation to the rest of the film, or was it? Did it just remain as this interlude? No, that artwork came later. I think we had done the film already, and then I think he got the title art done afterwards. But you know, we were going off of you know Technicolor colors. We were going off of Godard films, red, the red and the blue. Uh, I'm not sure which ones they were, like a woman is a woman or something. Yeah. And so it's all just bringing together all these elements together and trying to make choices that are tasteful and interesting, yet keep you engaged, you know? So, I mean, we watch American in Paris and Carefree, I mean, as well as Godard. Uh, those films, Magnolia and, and Punch Drunk Love and the, the 70s films, they, they're very specific about the milieu they're in. Looking at there will be blood and the master. You know, there will be blood is interesting because it, it, it kind of is a Western at the beginning, this, this frontiersman, but he transforms very quickly into mm -hmm. a businessman. Mm -hmm. um, how, could you just talk about how you envisaged and then developed with Paul the, the character of Daniel Plainview? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it, a lot of it came from just the practicality of research and again, time and place. Okay, we've got Daniel being a miner. Here's images of the miner. How does that, you know, what, what do we want to distill it down to, to be? And then what is that beat to tell the story next? 
you know, I always wanted to find sort of the most quirky, interesting garments from the period. You know, there, he wears that one hat once he's on the train, this jacket and hat when he's on the train with the baby. And I just, I always love how that looks because it doesn't look like anything else. It's of like one moment in time. Um, and just, and it actually does go quite quickly. So you just have to try to give as much richness to each of those moments and, and specific choices. Minor, living it with a can of beans, <laughs> you know, camping, you know, out in the wilderness and hitting oil, <clears throat> becoming somewhat civilized, and then the kid, you know, it's X number of years later, 10 years later, and so business suit says everything we need to know. So you just get it without him uttering a word. Hopefully my story, you know, that I'm telling gives you everything you need to know for time and place, and then they can start talking. And in the master, you, you, it's the dichotomy of costume design between the two central characters that really fascinates me. That they, they, they seem to both complement each other in the same way the characters do, but at the same time they're in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And it struck me every time up from their first encounter through to the way that that relationship develops, the look of both of them is so essential in, in kind of understanding this dynamic of a relationship. Especially if talking about that, I, you know, I don't do any of that stuff really consciously, you know, it's like, oh, this is how I'm gonna do it. No, I, I think the last meeting that they have when, when the master is in England and Freddie comes to see him, that visual contrast was something that I planned. The rest of it just is, <clears throat> comes from where they are in the story, you know, where they are as people in the story. And the language of the clothes of 1950, you know, and, and carefully choosing, you know, this leisure jacket versus this rayon shirt. Or and pleated pants for Freddie. Someone asked me about those high-waisted pleated pants, and you know, <clears throat> I thought they were perfect for a guy who's always ready to jump in the sack with somebody. You know, it's always on edge. They they're kind of modesty pieces. You can't see what's going on in the <laughs> pants. <there. clears throat> so <clears throat> it's all like character-based. It really is, and just working with that vocabulary of what would be right for that year, and then tell the story that way and then who they were and you know it's were there where did you have any or did you make any adjustments to Joaquin Phoenix's costumes in once he started inhabiting this role because there's this feral physicality to his performance a character that's crouched over that's mm -hmm. that's that never quite sits never quite has a conventional posture and mm -hmm. it struck me that was this you know, was this a challenge to actually design for? No, um, because it's the kind of thing, like which came first, you know, high-waisted pants and a rayon shirt or that posture. I'm not sure. I think they, ideally they work together. Yeah. You know, he comes in fresh to fittings and I have it all charted out. And, you know, as he puts on the things, you know, hopefully Freddie appears. And as he lives in them, 
he takes on that funny stance where his arm is way in the back of him, his hand is on his hip, and he goes round-shouldered and things. And I think, I think it's him living in those clothes that got him there. Um, <clears throat> he didn't come into the fitting and say like, oh, I'm gonna stand like this. So could you make the hem length? <laughs> Uh, so that it looks good, you know. It was more like, oh, okay, this is what he wears, and then he rolled it into a guy, uh, into a real living character. I think we've got a couple of minutes left. Any questions from anyone? Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, do you find that you make a lot of things from scratch these days, or would you say more things are bought or do you, uh, just to repeat for the camera, um, do you make things from scratch these days or is, do things tend to be bought or rented? You know, <clears throat> I've always done a combination of, of it all, like bought, rent, remake. Um, it depends on the situation. Um, I got to make a lot of stuff for Fifty Shades of Grey, um, timing being that I, I made a lot of things for the artists because the 20s clothes don't exist. Um, in Hair and Vice, I made things that were specific to Pinchon's vision. Um, it all depends on scheduling uh, and the needs of the script and the practical aspect of doing it. And do you have a, with location shooting a film like Captain Phillips or There Will Be Blood, uh, a kind of a first aid kit, extras, things you take just in case, or? Are you pretty funny. sorted by the time you get no, there? No, it's pretty funny you should say that because I don't know if you, when we were preparing to go to Marfa, Texas, West Texas to shoot There Will Be Blood, I told everybody, pack like we're going to Gilligan's Island, okay? <laughs> because we won't be able to get anything, okay? And it was true. And at some point I had to make multiples of a coat for Daniel and luckily we had, had brought the fabric to do it. We brought a lot of fabric and things. So, and luckily I had a great cutter with us. But um, that packing like Gilligan's Island, um, <clears throat> I brought a lot of things to <clears throat> Malta as well for the Somali village. It's funny, the Somali village in Captain Phillips was pretty much all shopped in the uh, charity shops of the San Fernando Valley, <laughs> um, and then sort of distressed and died and everything too. So because it, there's not that volume of charity shops in Malta where we were prepping, so if I hadn't brought it, and then it got distressed and packed away, and four weeks later I opened it up, fit the people in Morocco, and shot it you know, in two days. So if I hadn't brought it from California, I'm, it wouldn't have ended up looking like it did, you know, so. And do you, I know this is a tough question, but it, is, is there a moment, a scene, or a particular design that you look back on and you still think, ah, oh, yes, that worked, that, I'm so happy with that. Just one? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can do a few. <laughs> Just one? Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot in There Will Be Blood. I love how that movie came out looking. You know, I know what I was going for, and then the cinematography is so beautiful. And uh, there, There's a lot that I'm very happy with. And, you know, I used to work for a designer who said, if you're happy with 75% of what you get on screen, you're doing pretty well. And I have to say, 
I'm, I, I'm doing better than 75%. And there I was hoping that you were going to say Tom Cruise's wife fronts in You know, I actually think, you want to talk about Tom Cruise's wife fronts, I actually think Tom Cruise brought those to the set. Okay? <laughs> it was like, it was out of my, it was like something that he and Paul had worked out. Okay, it was just like, because I think I wanted black. Okay, I think I wanted black. And so it was their own trip. I don't know. And on that note, Mark Bridges, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.